Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, a podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about the 19th century Russian composer Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Before we get going, I have a few things to say. Firstly, content warnings. This episode will contain mentions of suicide, relationships between adults and adolescents, and period typical homophobia, both societal and like internalized homophobia from Pyotr himself. It also contains a cholera pandemic, death by cholera, and just general discussions of pandemic, which are currently a sensitive topic. So look after yourselves. This is the first of two episodes on Tchaikovsky, who just did a lot of things in his life. We'll be bringing out the second part on February 15th, so in two weeks' time. And before we start, I'd like to thank, firstly, all the people who have suggested Tchaikovsky over the years. He is our most popular suggestion at the moment. And secondly, all of our Patreons who voted on the poll for this episode. I also just want to make a quick note about dates. Between now and the 19th century, Russia has changed their calendar. I've chosen to use the old dates. It just made more sense to me to use the dates that like Tchaikovsky was mentioning in his letters and things like that than update anything by like 14 days or whatever it was. So I feel like this was on the 7th of November. That wouldn't have been the 7th of November like in Australia, but that was yeah. the 7th of November to Tchaikovsky. Yeah, exactly. To Pyotr, as I guess to we'll Pyotr. be calling him. Yeah, so for instance, he was born on the 25th of April in Russia, but for like Australia in 1840, it would have been the 7th of May. Wow, this has big astrology implications. True. What star sign is Pyotr? I guess that's <laughs> Taurus or something. Yeah, Why not? We're not those kind of games. Don't, don't add us. I don't know anything about this. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, just a quick note about sources. Tchaikovsky did write endless journals and letters throughout his life. Good on him. Which was very helpful of him. However, in the process of them being published, first his younger brother, who published a number of them, edited some to protect his brother's reputation. Do you mean he took the gay stuff out? Sometimes he did. Sometimes he edited other things. Sometimes the original content of the letter has been restored because the original letter still remains in the archives. Sometimes it hasn't. The same goes for censorship done by the Soviet Union. Some of that, again, has been restored, but not all of it. One of the texts I drew from was Alexander Poznansky's book, Tchaikovsky, The Quest for the Inner Man, which was published in 1991. And it did make it kind of nice that I could, like, cross-check the quotations he used there with like a more recently published book called The Tchaikovsky Papers, which is an anthology of letters and have like gaps and censored sections reappear. Oh, that is very satisfying. That was so exciting. That doesn't happen a lot. It does not. Sometimes he would make guesses about what was under the censorship <laughs> and sometimes he was wrong. <laughs> like wildly wrong? Um, Usually he was right about like the vague theme of what was in there, but there would be specifics that were just oh, like yeah. mm-hmm. off track. Mm-hmm. You generally could tell because the only things that the Soviet Union censored in Tchaikovsky's works were either content about queer stuff or content about the Tsar, who Tchaikovsky was quite close with. Oh, I didn't know that. Now we can get into his life. That was an easy lit review. There are, like, things that I would say about Poznansky and his book and, like, other books in general, but they're largely not, like, general statements. My one, like, major general problem, which I'm glad you reminded me of, 
is that Poznansky, while his biography pays a lot of attention to Piotr's queerness, he's very determined to kind of find psychological sources for it. Um, <sighs> you know how it is. Like, aside from that being sort of problematic, I just find that so boring whenever a biographer decides to do that, to try to kind of, like, psychoanalyze the person. Because mm. I can never quite take it seriously at, yeah. like, potentially true information. Yeah. Like, I feel like that is kind of like, well, Piotr was a Taurus with a whatever cusp, therefore. Like, I feel like that's yeah. just as legit. Yeah, yeah. So you end up with, like, yeah. whole bits of the biography. You're like, this is not content. This is your just wild speculation that I have that's to get through. Let me just skim until yeah. you stop saying Freud. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely how it was. Like, at one point he proposed that Ilya, Piotr's father, who was married three times throughout his life, because of his reputation as a ladies' man, this had put Piotr off women. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, Ilya married three times because his first two wives died. I don't even know what to say. That's just, like you said, it's boring. It's just like, really? Really? Why did yeah. you decide to say that, Poznanski? You're not bringing anything useful to the discussion. That just is so obviously illogical. Like, oh no, if I had a wife, maybe she would die. I will date men who are immortal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Piotr was born to Ilya and Alexandra Tchaikovsky on April the 25th, 1840, in a town called Votkinsk where his father was the manager of an ironworks. Sounds intensely boring. (laughs) (laughs) Alexandra was Ilya's second wife. and What a ladies' man. Yeah. You've kind of spoiled that she will die. (laughs) She will die, it's true. She will die. She was 17 years younger than Ilya, but they do seem to have had a, like, genuine relationship. That's nice. They seem to have been quite in love. There are some very nice, like, very sweet letters that we can read from, like, the period when they got engaged and got married. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, Ilya writing effusively to Alexandra about how the heavens opened up and angels sang when she said yes to his proposal. Oh, it's very so sweet. sweet. Yeah. So they had their first child together, Nikolai, in 1838, Piotr in 1840, and then Alexandra and Ippolit in 1842 and 43. Ilya was a very openly affectionate father. Did Um, that make Piotr gay? Maybe. I'm sorry, now that you've said this, I'm just going to be obnoxious about it. His letters to his wife and his children are all, like, invariably effusive. He promises to smother them in hugs and kisses when he sees them. This is, like, frankly unheard of for dads on this podcast and, like, somewhat in life. That is just such a refreshing change. I don't have any bad words to say about either of Tchaikovsky's parents. Wow. Wow. They seem good. Amazing. (laughs) Their one probable sin was sending him to boarding school when he was 10, but that was like a relatively normal thing to Mm. do at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a bad idea, but if culturally that was how you got your education at the time, then, you know. Alexandra was less sort of openly effusive, but all the children still remember her as a very loving mother, Modeste. The youngest Tchaikovsky child, who is not yet born at this time, <laughs> described her as very kind, but her kindness in comparison to her husband's constant affability was austere and displayed more in actions than in words. Piotr himself remembered her as a magnificent woman who loved her children passionately. What a nice family. Yeah, it's a super nice family. We also have more very cute letters from Ilya to Alexandra, which include like illegible scribbles from the children at the bottom. (laughs) From like when one of them's out of town and he's like, this is my translation. This says, dear mama, when you come back from St. Petersburg, please bring me sweets. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, music was a feature of Piotr's early life. The family had, hilariously, an orchestrion. What the hell's an orchestrion? It's one of those, like, it's like a no-brand name for those, like, player pianos. Oh. Like pianolas and things like that. Like the ones that you put, like, a reel in and you, like... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. that pianola was a brand. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's it the is. Kleenex of... <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, it had a bunch of, like, different things. It had pipes. It had some, like, percussion elements. It was a whole deal, the orchestrion. That's amazing. Cool. Um, it sounded pretty great. Can you imagine how much fun that would be when you were a child? Yeah. That would be so good to have in your house. Yeah. Piotr demonstrated, even at that age, an excellent sense of, like, pitch and memory for music. They also had a piano. He didn't have any formal training at the time, but he would play the piano constantly, and when he wasn't at the piano, he would play the imaginary piano (laughs) on the table or the wall. (laughs) On the wall. After he accidentally broke a window with overly enthusiastic fake piano playing, (laughs) his parents decided to hire a piano teacher. He's not actually in any way, like a child prodigy like his teachers kind of note that he's like naturally quite good at this but he's not going to be like composing at 13 or like you know performing at that age or anything it's not like the mozart thing where he like goes into church and hears a whole piece once and writes it all out from memory or anything Um, like he writes compositions when he's like 13 and 14 but if you look at them you're like i see (laughs) are 13 (laughs) yeah yeah on may the 1st of 1850 Alexandra Tchaikovsky gave birth to her two youngest children, twins Anatoly and Modeste. Pyotr was, like, immediately taken by them. In a letter to an old governess who had since left the family, he wrote, I've already seen them several times, and each time when I see them, I believe they are angels who have descended to Earth. Aww. This is such a nice family. It is just a very nice family. How old is Piotr when Modeste and Anatoly are born? Uh, ten. I love this ten-year-old child who plays the piano on Windows and is obsessed with the babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He seems like a super sweet kid, honestly. Yes. He, like, is like this about children for his whole life. Every time he meets one, he's just like, this is the sweetest and most enchanting human I've ever encountered. Oh, oh my God. Another angel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, in August of the same year, Piotr was enrolled in boarding school in St. Petersburg. It was the preparatory school for the School of Jurisprudence, which was essentially like a feeder school into the civil service. So, they're like setting him up for a like chill, stable career. He missed his family a great deal, especially his mother. His letters home are a lot like his dad's letters were. They're all, I smother you in hugs and kisses. Dear mum, I kiss your lovely hands and fingers. Aww. <laughs> And in 1852, he successfully progressed from the prep school into the School of Jurisprudence itself. The school itself was rigidly disciplined. Students had class six days a week. Corporal punishment was not uncommon. And there was a certain amount of, like, inter-student bullying that was just considered normal and acceptable. In spite of this, Piotr seems to have had overall quite a good time. One classmate recalled that... There was undoubtedly something special about Tchaikovsky that separated him from the crowd of other boys and made our hearts go out to him. They described him as having a notable innate kindness and gentleness and said that he was generally very well liked. Um, so what happens when you have a good dad? Mm. I guess so. He was still having piano lessons on Sundays, which was his day off from class. Six days of class and then piano lessons on Sundays. <laughs> yeah. When does he nap? No. No nap. His school friends remembered him having a talent for improvising at the piano, 
but one classmate, Vladimir Gerard, said, We were amused, but we're not particularly imbued with any expectations of his future glory. Oh, yeah, they're just like... for your honesty. Yeah. <laughs> Our mate Pete, he's pretty good at the piano. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Yeah, basically. I did wonder when we would first call him Pete. <laughs> <laughs> it had to happen eventually. It's now. Piot. Um. <laughs> What's the, like, Russian nickname for Peter? Depending Peach. on how affectionate you're being, I saw, like, 500 versions of this, but Petya is the normal one. And then there's, like, Petka and Petrusha, and it just, like, goes on, becoming, like, increasingly cute. In 1854, when Pyotr was 14, his mother died unexpectedly of cholera. He would remember this as the first powerful grief he had ever experienced. 23 years later, he still wrote... I shall never reconcile myself to the fact that my mother, whom I loved so much, is gone from the world. Mm. To go back to the school of jurisprudence, Poznansky describes the school's atmosphere as homoerotically charged. Well, it's a boarding <laughs> school, I suppose. It's an all-boys boarding school. Of course it's gay. The idea that same-sex attractions or relationships might happen between boys at the school seems to have been widely known and considered relatively normal, provided that it kind of stayed on a small scale. Vladimir Tanev who disliked Tchaikovsky for his entire life, mentioned him exactly one time in his memoir, they were at school together, in order to say that Tchaikovsky was well known as the most handsome man in the school. That's profoundly weird. It was just very funny. He literally mentioned him once to be like, this guy, he was the hottest boy in the school. But I sure do hate him. And then he never comes up again. To be like, how do I summarize my school days? What were the key points? Oh, yeah. Piotr was very hot. What else happened at school? Sometimes they beat me. <laughs> yeah. Piotr also struck up a friendship at this time with Alexei Apukhtin, who later became a moderately successful poet and a noted homosexual. Ah, yes. <laughs> I love when people are like, what are they famous for? Just gay? Yeah. yeah. I yeah. love... The phrase a moderately successful poet is somehow so savage. <laughs> I mean that like quite genuinely. No, I'm like, sure he you wasn't do. like world famous, but he was quite successful. I guess because I normally say that in biographies of more famous poets where it was like, this guy's friend who was fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the two of them developed a close friendship which lasted aside from occasional fallings out for essentially their entire adult lives. I have a few other queer notes about Tchaikovsky's time at boarding <laughs> school. Ten years later, on the occasion of Modeste's graduation from the same school, he wrote him a letter which said, I wish that your joy may not be mixed with the bitterness that I felt then due to my love for Kiriev. Sergei Kiriev was an underclassman of Tchaikovsky's, so he was leaving him behind at school. And it was widely rumoured that they had had a relationship. The second note is a group photo of Piotr and his graduation class. Piotr is in the front row holding hands with another boy. Oh, that's very cute. I don't know who this boy is. Don't know anything about wow. him, but they're in the front row, like, sitting side by side, hand in hand. This episode has been so soft. <laughs> so far. I wish to see this. You can see the photo. It will be on the blog. Yeah. On May the 12th of 1859... Piotr graduated from the School of Jurisprudence. As his parents had hoped, he immediately entered the civil service. He worked in the civil service for four years. He was promoted 
once or twice, but not to any particularly notable position. He claimed he had been a conscientious worker, but could never remember what his duties had actually involved. I feel like that's <laughs> what being a public servant is. Um, yeah, basically. Do we know what he was doing? Or we literally, he was he just was like, he was in... Some there? kind of clerk. He okay. was doing some kind of generic admin work. All right. Same, I guess. Yeah. And the impression that I got was that, like, he was fine. <laughs> they had no reason to fire him, but he wasn't particularly notable. He was also involved with a group of friends who made up the kind of like elite queer social circle of St. Petersburg and Moscow, which included his school friend Alexei and the young aristocrat Prince Golitsyn. So I understand in Russia, prince does not specifically mean like son of the king, right? No. Yeah. No, he's just a aristocratic somewhat fancy boy yeah Yeah. a somewhat fancy boy and a slightly older effeminate gay man called Bochechkarov who Tchaikovsky was immediately charmed by in spite of him being like a kind of bumbling socially awkward older man okay and at various times he would invite Bochechkarov to live with him or offer him financial support oh yeah in the biography of Pyotr that Modest wrote in the early 1900s, he didn't mention any homosexuality, but he put this down to Pyotr being interested in the connection with the past that Bochechkarov gave him. Mm. So, like, they talked about history a lot, apparently. That's interesting. Um, And I wonder whether Pyotr was also... You know how we're always very excited to meet, like, queer elders? Yeah. Mm. Mm. I wonder if he had a similar feeling about that. That's what I was going to suggest, so... Yeah. So does Modest, like, know that Pyotr is queer? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so he could have even been, like, hinting at that himself when he said that. He just, like, kindly wrote a biography that wouldn't affect his reputation, basically. Okay. Mm. But yeah, no, he 100% knows. They write letters to each other about it constantly. (laughs) Dear brother, I am gay. How are you? (laughs) While Pyotr was working as a civil servant, he also took night classes in music theory with the Russian Musical Society. The Russian Musical Society was a relatively new organization, and its goal was kind of to bring culture to Russia. The perception was very much that Russia had no culture and all culture was imported from Western Europe. Oh, okay. Mm. This Mm -hmm. is, like, surprisingly still a thing you encounter sometimes. Yeah, you read a paragraph to me from, like, that History of Ballet book, like, last week. I did. (laughs) And it's quite a, like, well-acclaimed history of ballet. And in the middle of it, she comments at the start of a chapter, and she says, Russia was culturally impoverished until Peter the Great in the 1600s began importing, like, French culture and French norms. It's very weird whenever anyone says that about a country. Yeah, every country has culture. You're just Mm. showing your hand as to what you consider to be real culture and what you don't. Yeah, yeah. Like when people talk about how Australia is too young to have much culture, it's like, just say you're racist and move on. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Which isn't really relevant to this situation. <laughs> yeah. But it was the 26th yesterday here, so. Yeah. yeah. In 1862, the night school was to become the St. Petersburg Conservatory of Music, which was able to offer full time music courses mm. the way that a conservatory does. This was the first time it was possible to get a 
formal, like, Western-style, like, university-style sort of music education in Russia. Tchaikovsky immediately applied to enroll. He would study full-time at the conservatory for the next three years. On and off throughout this time, his financial situation was obviously terrible because he'd quit his job. He supplemented his income with, like, accompanying and teaching children piano and that kind of thing. Which I imagine he loved to do. He quite liked. If he thought all children were angels. (laughs) (laughs) Every time he meets a student, he's like, my student is so bright. I love them. He also, he has, like, no hesitation about saying, oh, this child has no particular gift in music. That's Mm. okay. Um, Yeah, he's, like, quite honest about it to their parents and that kind of thing. But he doesn't sound like the kind of person who would be like, you are hopeless to the child. So I don't think there's anything, like, wrong with that. Mm. No, Mm. he would often, and he did this to his younger brothers as well, he would give people, like, advice that was like, I think it's good that you have an artistic soul, but I think you should look at a more stable career as well. Oh, yeah. And that kind of thing. He gave sensible. the kindest way to say you are a bad pianist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He gave, like, sensible career advice, which he never followed himself. But he was good at the piano, so that's okay. (laughs) But it's, like, exactly what his father wrote to him Mm. when he was like, I think I'd like to become a musician. And Ilya writes to him and is like, that's all very well, but I think you should try having a reliable income. The civil service is waiting for you. Just imagine this like a totally grey propaganda poster. It's like, <laughs> the civil service is waiting for you and just like yeah. sans serif font. Anyway, he graduated in 1865, by which time he had become convinced that the only possible career path for him was in music. Things were looking fairly promising for his musical career at this point. Some of his compositions had been publicly performed by the student orchestra of the conservatory. And Johann Strauss had conducted a suite of dances that he'd written. Oh, cool. I'm not sure how that happened, but that was quite cool. Nice. On January 6th of 1866, Tchaikovsky moved to Moscow. This was because Anton Rubinstein, who was the director of the St. Petersburg Conservatory, had a brother in Moscow who was about to open a Moscow Conservatory of Music. And he said he could set Tchaikovsky up with a professorship there, basically. Nice. And so he headed off to Moscow. Nikolai Rubinstein immediately like took him under his wing, let him stay in his house, bought him new clothes... He was also easily able to kind of integrate himself into a social circle in Moscow because it was quite closely linked with his social circle from St. Petersburg. Oh, yeah. So, like, another queer social circle? Yeah, kind of. So, is it, like, illegal to be gay in Russia at the moment? Yes. It's illegal to be gay in Russia. The way it kind of goes is that no one's ever prosecuted unless something else bad has come up. Ah, yeah, yeah. It's that thing where it's like, if you wind up in court for some other reason, you may also get done for the homosexuality. Oh, so like, we need to like arrest this person for something. Yeah. Okay. And just to be clear, by illegal to be gay, do you mean it's illegal for two men to have sex? Yeah. Okay, just checking. Yeah, it was also quite difficult to prosecute because it required witnesses. Ah, yes, yes, Um, yes. Which meant that somebody had to have been sodomized and then confessed to it. Then it maybe needed to be two witnesses. Um, so yeah, it was quite difficult to prosecute. I will just give you a little rundown of his daily routine, which he described in a letter to his brother in April. I am so prepared to be delighted by this. I have like extremely... really got on the Tchaikovsky train very quickly. It's extremely relaxing. Very good. Um, he would wake in the morning between nine and ten. 
Nice. Mm-hmm. Good After start. After his morning tea. What did he eat for breakfast? He did not actually mention this. He just nah. says that he has morning tea. Okay. Um, and then between 11 and 2.30, he would either teach or work on the symphony he was composing, depending on what his timetable was like at the conservatory. At 2.30, he would take a walk. And then at 4, he would have dinner. After dinner, he might go for another walk. <laughs> or- <laughs> so work stops at 2.30. Work stops at 2.30. You know, sometimes and he begins at 11. A three and a half hour work. Okay. Sometimes he goes back to work after dinner instead of having the other walk. <laughs> if the work is going well or like it's raining or something. And For then, how long though? He says that after that he will spend the evening playing cards with friends. Okay, so and not, get, that, not long. that long. And get home around midnight. <laughs> what a life. <laughs> he would read in bed for a while and then he would go to bed. That's so idyllic. <laughs> that was his day. It's like what we do on holiday. Yeah, yeah. this is just his daily life. <sighs> I mean, I feel like he does deserve that given that not that long ago he was in the civil service and then before that studying six days a week and then yeah. Yeah. also yeah. piano on the set. He did often suffer from depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this was probably good for him. Mm-hmm. A nice relaxing life. Even at this time, he would sometimes write these letters that were sort of like, or in his journal, sort of saying, even though everything is perfect and my life is low stress, I feel empty. Or like mm. I'm not getting enough done. Or I love this man. <laughs> <laughs> he is me. I did find his early, like his early years, very relatable. I love how he quit his steady civil service job to go back and study full time in something that's not like a yeah. good career. Yeah, I like that too. So... In autumn of 1868. So this is the Northern Hemisphere and autumn is the end of the year. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying. I was picturing April. (laughs) (laughs) Piotr met the French singer Desiree Artaud. That was actually her stage name, but she always seems to go by it. So we're just going to use it. Fair. She was not like publicly known to be particularly beautiful or particularly desirable. A friend of Piotr's described her as a 30-year-old spinster with a plain and passionate face who was just beginning to grow stout. Tchaikovsky wildly disagreed with this assessment. <laughs> In the September of 1868, he wrote to his brother Anatoly, Arto is a splendid person. She and I have become friends. And then a month later... I am now on very friendly terms with Arto and enjoy her very noticeable favour. Rarely have I met a woman so lovely, intelligent, and kind. My instinct is to be like, sounds gay, but like, doesn't sound gay, but you know, like, sounds romantic as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In November, he wrote to Modeste, If you knew what a singer and actress is, Arto, never have I been under so strong a spell of an artist as this one. How you would admire her gestures and the grace of her movements and poses. So he's pretty, like, pretty taken with her. He's pretty taken with her. One of his friends described how when they were first, like, into each other and they hadn't really hashed things out yet, he was like, they would gaze at each other adoringly and with mutual embarrassment. (laughs) 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 Which I loved. That's so good. By December, Anatoly wrote to his brother saying, I've heard that in Moscow, all that anyone talks about is your marriage to Arto. Oh, like the potential of his marriage? Or are they just married now? They are not actually married. They have discussed it, but they're not yet married. So okay. he writes back to his brothers saying, can you reassure my father that we haven't secretly got married without his consent? I'm not like <laughs> keeping him out of the loop. <laughs> there were several obstacles to their marriage. The first was Arto's mother, who considered... Tchaikovsky to be too young and too immature for her daughter. 
The age difference between them was like four years. So I presume that what she really means is that he doesn't have a steady career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I forget when he was born. So I don't know how old he is at any point anymore. He was born in 1840. So okay. I think he's 27, 28 at the moment. And she was like 30? And she was like 30. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of like I want an older, like, man with a steady career and money to support my daughter rather than, like, he's massively younger than her. Yeah. The second problem was that if he married Arto, he would be the less famous and the lower earner of the pair. And his friends warned him that being emasculated in this way would destroy his sense of self and thus his creativity. Um, <laughs> Ilya, his father, wrote back to him about this and was like, that's nonsense. Ilya's good. right. Yes, good. I was going to say, what would his dad have to say about this? And then you told me. Yeah. Which only cements that he's a good man. <laughs> Ilya wrote back a nice letter that said, a good friend will manage to spark your inspiration, not destroy it. With such a person as your Desiree, you will perfect rather than lose your talent. When she sings your aria, the applause will belong to you both. That's right, Ilya. And Tchaikovsky was like, that sounds fine. (laughs) (laughs) You're correct, Dad. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. However, it all mysteriously became a moot point because the company that Desiree was working for left Russia, and while in Warsaw, she unexpectedly married another singer in the company. Oh. Oh. I don't know what happened. I don't know why. Pyotr was also stunned and hurt. Oh. I guess maybe to her it was more of just like a fling that once she left Russia, she was like, time to find someone else. Mm. Did yeah. she get pregnant? Question mm. Maybe that's what happened. Yeah, that's yeah. possible. We don't really know. Her work brought her back to Moscow towards the end of 1869. On October 30th, Pyotr wrote to Modeste saying he was very anxious about her return. The woman has done me much harm, he wrote. But nevertheless, an inexplicable sympathy draws me to her. He couldn't avoid her because rehearsals for an opera that he was involved in and her performances were happening at the same venue. Mm. And thus they crossed paths. A small world. A friend of Tchaikovsky's, Nikolai Kashkin, describes his reaction to seeing her perform. He covered his face with his opera glasses and did not remove them until the end of the act, though he could scarcely have seen much since tears were streaming down his face. So I was very sad for. Nice soft boy. I know. Yeah. They sounded like they would have had a nice marriage. Yeah. So that was very sad. I'm way more invested in this than I am. better being, frankly. <laughs> same, same. I am sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, Poznansky, for a moment of nonsense, <laughs> tried to dismiss this, like, public breakdown as Tchaikovsky being overwhelmed by her artistry because he was gay. So how could he be in love with a woman? (laughs) I mean, that's kind of refreshing for a biographer to say that, like, there's no way this person could have been into a woman because they're so gay as opposed to the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, It's still terrible nonsense. It's still terrible nonsense. I'm just saying it's rarer. (laughs) Yeah. That's true. Yeah, no, I definitely had to put a lot more work into, like, making sure that we knew he'd been in love with women sometimes than that we knew he was gay, which everyone just kind of assumed to the point where I was like, give me some quotes about this, please. (laughs) (laughs) They did reconnect some 20 years later. They ran into each other in Paris and like connected as old friends. That's good. I don't know. Like they must've talked out what happened, but he wrote some piano pieces that he dedicated to her. Oh, that's nice. But we don't really know what happened there. By 1870, Modeste Tchaikovsky was 19 years old and was getting deeply involved in the same queer circles that Piotr was involved in. Oddly, this concerned Piotr a great deal. He'd kind of 
accepted in himself that he was attracted to men and was very like worried and disappointed that his younger brother was. He wrote to Anatoly saying, It was unpleasant to find out that Modeste is the same type of person as I am. And to Modeste himself, he wrote assuring him that at 19, it would be easy to learn to love women. Oh, that's mm, um, sad. He absolutely didn't follow his own advice on this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that is sad and unfortunate. Yeah, which is quite sad. And yeah, he kind of throughout his life has this sort of flip-flopping feeling about his sexuality where sometimes he sort of thinks it's wholesome and natural and he's quite content and other times he feels quite, like, morally conflicted about it. Mm. So he's part of this, like, queer social circle. Mm. What does that involve? Like, he sometimes has, like, short-term lovers within this circle. I will tell you some, like, short examples soon. Or... Largely, it just seems that they're a group of people who can talk openly about being attracted to men with each other and play cards. Oh, yeah. It seems it was more common a lot of the time for them to take lovers who were, like, lower class than them as a way, I think, of, like, diverting scandal. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of, you know, it's much less weird to have this man in your house as a coachman Mm -hmm. or something like that than it is to... Have another upper class man who just kind of lives with you. Yeah, I guess so. But having said that, he definitely like had lovers in this circle sometimes. He was never like the center of this circle. He was never like deeply entrenched in Mm -hmm. sort of queer culture. Yeah, he kind of remained on the edge of it a lot of the time. He considered himself quite introverted. In 1871... After several years of living with friends such as Nikolai Rubinstein, who was also his employer, but they became quite close friends, he was able to get his own apartment. This meant two things. First, he took on his own servants, two young men who were brothers called Mikhail Sofronov, age 21, and Alexei Sofronov, who was at the time 12. Oh, yeah. I guess having a 12-year-old servant was just a thing that happened at the time, but like, obviously from a modern perspective, that doesn't seem good or okay. Yeah, but having a 12-year-old servant seems to have been quite accepted at the Mm -hmm. time. Secondly, having his own space meant that he could openly explore his sexual desires for men a lot more. So I'm just going to give you one random sample of his relationships during this time, because it would would have been easy for me to fill this entire two-hour recording session with letters that were like, Dear Vanya, I love you. Dear Misha, 1,000 kisses. <laughs> I kiss your fingers and your beautiful hands. That's weird, because he's that exact same thing about his mom. He's very... <laughs> the way he writes to his lovers and the way he writes to his family are quite similar. So, the following letter from Piotr to his friend Ivan Klemenko was preserved in Klemenko's memoirs, which were not subject to the same sort of like strict censorship mm. as Piotr's were in the Soviet Union. Is that just because he's, like, not that important? Yeah, he's just not that famous. It read as follows. This is an excerpt from it. It was longer than this. (laughs) Can you, the most beloved of the concubines in my harem, you, the most beautiful Klimenya, which is, like, a sort of, like, cute feminized form of Klimenko? Oh, yeah. Doubt for even a single moment my love for you. He's apologizing for not having written in a long time. Um, no, my silence can be explained merely by the laziness of your sultan. He is the sultan. <laughs> Next time you just like don't reply to someone's Facebook message for like two weeks. <laughs> yes. Copy paste this in. Um, strictly They'll sp- never message you again. They won't. <laughs> solve that problem. <laughs> 
strictly speaking, he writes, it would not even have been worthwhile writing to you since we shall see each other soon, but I took pen in hand at the relentless request of my divan. The divan is a pun. It's both a couch and it's the name of, like, the Turkish government. Um. Um, he is the sultan. <laughs> so, of my divan, which has been re-upholstered with new fabric on the occasion of my move to the new apartment. It is drooping out of longing for you. <laughs> <laughs> To its request, I add my own. If you wish to give us both considerable pleasure, stay at my place and live with us as long as you like. I hope you will not force me, that is, the sultan, and my divan, that is, my government, to turn our requests into commands, disobedience of which entails the penalty of death by impalement. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> when you said out like the divan and me are drooping, I was like, well, that's me and you, Endo, Piotr. And yeah. then like, yes, yes, yes it was. So he writes that letter. Ivan Klevenko, in his memoir, follows up with, I yielded to the lovely invitation and lived for some time with Pyotr Ilyich. So there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> there's well, a lot going on. So I guess the first question I have is, like, we've alluded to that older guy who was, like, somewhat yeah. feminine before, and then you mentioned that this nickname was, like, somewhat feminized. So was there, as we see in, like, other queer male cultures like some feminine gender roles going on or are those just two things i picked up <laughs> no that's very true in the sort of russian queer subculture at this time they do often refer to themselves with like feminine versions of their mm -hmm. names or to each other he writes a letter to modest later where he refers to modest as my dear sister modestina okay um in tchaikovsky's case because modest writes back and calls him petrolina it doesn't appear to be connected to his sense of gender. It's not something that ever comes up in his journals and it's not something he ever mentions in his letters. But yeah, it's entirely possible that it meant different things to different people. But Chechkarov was also noted for having quite like feminine mannerisms and that kind of thing in letters. But Chechkarov is often referred to as Sophia. Oh, okay. Um, other times he's referred to as Nikolai. There's like a certain amount of like kind of feminine gender play going on. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I guess the other thing that we have to sort of explicitly note is like, well, that was uncomfortably orientalist. <laughs> it very much was. And that was a like quite mm -hmm. orientalism was a big thing in Russia at the time. Even if you look in like Tchaikovsky's music, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Nutcracker. Oh, like... As Vaguely. much as one is who has studied piano. Obligatory somewhat, I would say. And the, the whole deal of the Nutcracker, the plot line is that, like, the little girl goes to these, like, various lands of, like, sweets and luxury foods, like chocolate and things like that. And each of them is representative of a country. So you have this, like, Arabian dance, this Chinese dance, this Spanish dance, oh. which are all, like... I've only ever seen, like, modern performances of The Nutcracker by, like, a miscellaneous dance school where obviously it's just like, oh, and this class will just do this miscellaneous dance. And obviously in the modern day they don't make it weirdly. Oh, they yeah, very much still do. Yeah, you oh. could do that but do it not, like, yeah. bad. Like, yeah, you could yeah, literally yeah. just show cultural diversity and not, like, cultural yeah, stereotypes. And occasionally, I think a good version of this could be done. Occasionally mm. modern productions do do that. Like, I know there was one which replaced the traditional Chinese dance with a dance that they had, like, created along with some, like, Chinese folk dance choreographers. Mm. Oh, yeah. I guess that, that kind could, of thing. Could be cool if you would, could, like, partner with people from different countries or get, like, dance groups from different countries to, like, 
Yeah, yeah do each one. way to do that because it's not like we're gonna be like, let's ditch the Nutcracker. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. But yeah, no. At the time, it was very much just sort of like stereotype mm. caricatures of Oriental places. Mm. Um, mm. And so, yeah, this was a very kind of common yeah. thing to do. Around the same time, so the late 1860s or the early 1870s, uh, Pyotr came across a group of boys in Moscow planning to drown a stray dog in the <sighs> river. He offered to buy the dog off them. So he got the dog and he named her Bishka. Bishka. Um, Bishka apparently turned out to be a very intelligent dog and was terribly attached to him. On one occasion in 1876, he wrote a song about Bishka. <laughs> <laughs> like a it's song, called, like with lyrics? Yes, it's got lyrics. It's called Nefarious Dog, Shameless Bishka. And it's about like an <laughs> exasperated dog owner affectionately scolding his dog. <laughs> I spent a lot of time like looking for the sheet music or a recording of this song because I wanted you to hear it, but I couldn't find it. Oh, but did you find the lyrics? <laughs> no, I just found a summary. I'm oh. sure it's findable. I would just have to be better at Googling in Russian. Oh, I see, I see. Let's find it and perform it. Well, like probably <laughs> if I like went into a music library of some kind, there's probably like anthologies of Tchaikovsky's works that it's in. But I do not unfortunately have any version of the dog song here today. <laughs> It just sounded so good. Why must we perform The Nutcracker and not Shameless Bishka? <laughs> I just love that it's not just called Bishka or like Nefarious Bishka, but like Nefarious Dog Shameless Bishka. Yes. <laughs> Apparently the like conventional English translation of its title is The Underdog. And no. the like translator's note of the article I read was like, this extremely doesn't convey the character of this piece. <laughs> A better translation would be <laughs> Nefarious Dog Shameless Bishka. <laughs> I love Nefarious Dog Shameless Bishka. Same. What um, does Bishka mean, you know? Bishka is the name of the dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So somebody did suggest that it was like a um kind of like cutified version of a Russian word for like come or come here. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Are you just thinking of um Frederick's dog. Yeah, I was wondering because Frederick the Great's favorite dog was called Bish, and I was wondering, okay. and that means like doe, like a deer. Oh, okay, a female deer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering if it was actually just the same name. It may well be. Like that was just speculation, I think, about where Piotr had pulled Bishka from. Just, okay. um, Two gay men having dogs called Bishka. <laughs> yeah. In January of 1872, he debuted his second symphony. He had written a first symphony. It had debuted. It had been relatively well received. Um, but mm -hmm. his second symphony was a huge success. He considered it to be his best work so far. He wrote to his father saying, I was called back onto stage several times and there were several curtain calls. Oh. The Russian Musical Society awarded him a bonus of 300 silver rubles. Oh. Is that like a lot of rubles? That's like a good amount of rubles for Tchaikovsky at this time. Okay. okay. So more. he's not like insanely rich, but it's like good. Yeah, it's like more. a solid bonus. It's more rubles than I have. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, he joked to Modest, which is, I found this passage very funny. The time is drawing near when Kolya, Tolya, Ippolit, and Moja, which is like his nicknames for all of his brothers will no longer be the Tchaikovsky brothers, but merely the brothers of the Tchaikovsky. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Tremble, for soon my fame will crush you. <laughs> it's true, though, because as far as I was Modest Tchaikovsky, you'd be like, I guess that's Tchaikovsky's brother. So it's true. It's, it's <laughs> it did. Oh my god. I loved it that's so much. That's amazing. That's such like, that is how siblings write. Yes. 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 <laughs> Following the success of his second symphony, he began to work on a piano concerto. 
He took this to his friend Nikolai Rubinstein for feedback. For some reason, Rubinstein like cans it. He's like, this needs extremely like really to be reworked. It's terrible. It's a mess. This is never going to work. He was sufficiently harsh on it that Piotr was like, well, fine. This is clearly nonsense. I'm not changing a note. <laughs> I respect that. Um, I was worried that he'd be very upset because he seems like he a was bit soft. <laughs> he was often like quite hurt by critique of his work. Mm. That's true. And um, like he often read the reviews of his of his shows and like took the negative feedback quite to heart. Mm. Um, but in this case, I think because it was coming from a friend who he expected to be supportive, he was just kind of like, "Well, all right, stuff you." <laughs> I'm not changing a note. (laughs) Following this, he began to view the conservatory as quite, like, restrictive to his creative output. I wonder if he was still working there, like, sometimes for three hours. (laughs) (laughs) But he he still felt that it was taking up more of his time and his energy than he wanted to. 11.30 till 2. It's just too much. Too much. (laughs) The first piano concerto went okay in Russia. It was hugely successful in the U.S., for some reason. He was always incredibly famous in the US. He does go quite late in his life and is stunned to find that he's much more well-known than he is in Russia. (laughs) (laughs) To which, to be fair, he's quite famous by this time in Russia. Just the US was really big on him for some reason. In the US, they, like, loved him in ways that didn't come across particularly well in Russia. He always, like, as a conductor, he always felt quite, like, self-conscious, like he wasn't a particularly good conductor, and it wasn't something which his reviewers ever kind of commented on as being good. In the US, they thought it was amazing. They were like, this is the best conductor. He's so confident. He knows exactly what he's doing. Always works. And he was like, I see. (laughs) Do I? Oh, that's nice. There was obviously some difference in expectation, I guess. Mm -hmm. During this period, thanks to the 300 silver rubles, and a few other pieces that he'd written, which had done quite well. He had enough money for the first time to travel to Europe on his own. He'd been once before with a very wealthy student who had been like, come to Europe with me. It'll be fun. <laughs> it's funny to hear you say travel to Europe, because like in my mind, like Moscow and St. Petersburg are in Europe, but obviously at this time, Russia yeah. was considered like quite separate Not- to like yeah. Western Europe. They very much didn't perceive themselves as being in Europe. And it's often something that people... Or, like, newspapers will comment on or things like that in interviews with Tchaikovsky later in life. They'll be like, he's a very, you know, dignified old man, thoroughly westernized Mm, and things mm. like that. Or thoroughly European as opposed to being Russian. And now we talk about, like, Western Europe and Eastern Europe, which are both Europe. Yeah. So he traveled through France and Italy. He originally intended to travel all the way down to the south of the Italian peninsula, but the weather got too much for him halfway there. It was too hot, so he decided not to. He's just a humble Russian. Every time he travels, he gets quite homesick. Oh, yeah. Um, he, like, he enjoys, he especially liked Paris, um, mm-hmm. but he does get quite homesick. He also made this hilarious note about Venice, which he hated, and where he noted that he did not see a single dog. <laughs> what is the point of a city without a single dog? <laughs> Oh, I love him. What did he like about Paris? He liked shopping in Paris. Okay. He liked oh, yeah. clothes. He talks a lot about how like, he'll write letters and he'll be like, I've bought this waistcoat and this coat and I bought three new shirts. The money's just slipping through my fingers and I check myself out in every shop window that I pass. So he's like a very stylish man. <laughs> yeah, he goes to Paris and he's like, I'll become extremely stylish here. <laughs> in a way that I think is not acceptable in Russia at the time. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I assume there are dogs in Paris. There are dogs in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> There are surely dogs in Venice. He just chanced not to see one. And he was busy being mad that he didn't like it because he got lost all the time. Oh, yeah. So, in 
August of 1876, Modeste, who had been working a public service job in the provinces that he did not love, was tired of his career and instead accepted a position as the tutor to a deaf-mute boy called Nikolai Conradi, who was eight years old. Nikolai's parents insisted first that Modeste go to France to train for a year in, like, cutting-edge pedagogy for deaf children. Oh. Um, And then he became... The tutor to this child. What is cutting edge pedagogy for deaf children? So they did spend like a certain amount of time each day on like teaching him to speak and teaching him to lip read, basically. I don't know what the state of sign language in Russia was at that time. Essentially, his job was for most of the day to be like a tutor and like teach, you know, maths and history and the arts. Oh, yeah. And then spend like an hour or so each day like working on speech exercises and things like that. Okay. Doesn't seem terrible. I presume that if we looked at their, like, teaching methods now, we would be like, that seems like a nonsense approach to a deaf child, but I think they were genuinely doing their best. Mm -hmm. Nikolai was apparently very, like, academically bright. He made friends easily. Sounds good. seemed to have a good time having a tutor. So while he was traveling, Piotr met Modeste and his young student in France, And this seems to have triggered a kind of crisis of sexuality in Piotr. He wrote to Modeste on the way back from his travels, saying, I'm now experiencing a very critical moment in my life. When I have the chance, I shall write to you of this in greater detail, but for the time being, I say one thing. I've decided to marry. It is inevitable. I must do this, and not only for myself, but also for you and for Tolia, that is Anatoly, and for Sasha, who's his sister, and for all I love, for you in particular. But you also, Moja, need to think seriously about this. Sodomy and pedagogy cannot live in harmony with one another. So I think he was very concerned about, like, bad influences on the child. Mm. Oh, okay. He he sort of has this perception that, you know, you can influence someone into being gay. So is he also concerned about, like, because obviously Modeste is the tutor for this child, like, is he also concerned about the image of, like, perhaps a concern that Modeste could be seen to be taking advantage of his student. Is that like part of the worry? He is later on concerned when Modeste proposes that he and Collier, who is the boy, come and stay with him for a while. He's like, I can't have you doing that public image of me being the way it is. People will think that I'm like grooming this boy to be my Mm, lover. mm. Um, So he is concerned about that. And he's very much concerned about his own image and the effect that it has on his family. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Modeste was like less well-known as Mm -hmm. being like attracted to men at the time. So that could be a part of it. But he also writes and he says, I find that our inclinations are for both of us the most insurmountable obstacle to happiness. We must fight our nature. Does he want children? Yeah. Okay. He, when Sasha gets married and has children, he often thinks that he would like a like domestic household with children mm. and that kind of thing. So he did want children himself. So Is that like him idealizing what is the type of life he's like meant to have, or is that him specifically wanting to be a parent? I think it's some of both. Okay. At one point much later in his life, his servant Alexei, who was 12 before that I mentioned, mm-hmm. as like a young adult, has a brief relationship with another like staff member of a house that they're staying in in France and she becomes pregnant. She writes to them back in Russia and is like, I'm pregnant. I need some support. Yeah. And Tchaikovsky is like, I felt a rush of paternal love for this child Mm. um, as like the child of my household, essentially. So I think he did genuinely like feel some desire to be a parent that wasn't just, 
I want to, mm-hmm. you know, okay. be what's expected of me. Did they help her? They did. They did okay. send her money. Okay. So Piotr writes to Modeste, encouraging him to turn his tastes in a different direction and says that as for himself, he will do everything possible to marry this very year. But if I should lack the courage to do this, I am in any event abandoning forever my habits. I was a little surprised that he said sodomy, like just so blatantly in that letter. Like it seemed like he was really sort of talking around it. And then it was like, you know, sodomy. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) It was very like quite surprising to me because the original version of the letter I read had that blacked out. Oh, yeah. And I was like, what is it? And then eventually I found a like original version of this in Russian but not translated, but not censored. And I had to like dig out that word and look it up in a dictionary. Ah, yes. (laughs) And I was like, I looked it up in several dictionaries that were like, there are no results found for this. And you're like, like, I found one that was like sodomy. (laughs) Yeah. So like, look, there is potential for other translations, but I think it's fairly clear, like Mm. what that vibe is. Yeah. We know what he means, even if we don't know exactly what he said. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder also, because, like, Tchaikovsky obviously does have, like, some interest in women. Like, we had that Mm. whole thing with Desiree before. And I'm just, you know, musing. I wonder if Modeste was also attracted to women. Because Tchaikovsky can be like, I'm going to marry. And, like, there is a possibility that he'll meet a woman that he loves and he will marry her. Mm. And he's kind of trying to say, you should do this too, Modeste. And I'm just wondering if, like... For Modeste, he's like, that doesn't make any sense, Piotr. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Piotr doesn't seem to, like, fall for women very often compared to, like, how every man he sees, he's like, what an enchanting specimen. (laughs) He's like the opposite of, like, the bisexual meme on the internet, aka here's me. Everything you say about him, (laughs) I just get more... Um, Who knew you can develop this? I know. Tchaikovsky. I want to go read about him after this. Yeah. Um, So... In the following weeks after that letter to Modeste, he becomes less and less convinced that he should marry immediately. <laughs> That's fair. It did sound like a kind of panicked, like, oh, <laughs> Which no. Is reasonable. He wrote to Anatoly in September saying, I seriously mean to become a new man, only I wish to prepare for this gradually. <laughs> um, I'm going to become straight, but like next week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, not so long after that, he writes to... Modeste and says, it turns out I am so set in my habits and tastes that it is not possible to cast them all aside. <laughs> After my letters to you, I have already surrendered some three times to the force of my natural <laughs> tendencies. <laughs> Just imagine. Just only, imagine. Only the other day I made a trip to the village where Bulatov lives, that was a mutual gay friend of theirs, and whose house is nothing less than a male brothel. <laughs> Not only did I go there, but I fell madly in love with his coachman. (laughs) It is like, and I think maybe it's like partly a translation issue, but like the wild swinging between like, this house is a male brothel and like, oh, I can't give up my habits. Like, he's like, I guess that like habits sounds vague, but they may not just, they just didn't have a, what to us would seem a more specific vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's true. Like, you can't just be like, I don't want to be gay but I'm really gay. Like this yeah. Is, yeah. he's saying that yeah. Yeah. his language. <laughs> and I think, yeah, he's so like, he's very used to writing letters to modest talking about like their tastes or their habits or their like inclinations. Oh, like yeah. it's very clear. I think when he writes to Modest and is like our habits that, that means they're talking yeah. about yeah. sex with men. I love that he has like a brother who's also gay and they can just like write letters about like mm. gay stuff. I just love that he writes. He's like, please ignore previous letter. I remain <laughs> gay. <laughs> <laughs> so 
He finishes the letter saying, Whatever vows one may make, it is impossible to resist one's weaknesses. In another letter, he goes on to say, In a word, I should like by my marriage to shut the mouths of various contemptible creatures whose opinion I do not value in the least, but who can cause pain to the people close to me. So essentially he's Mm. saying, I don't think I'm actually going to stop being gay, but I think if I got married, like there would be less rumors about this. And it's to protect his family. Yeah, essentially. So I guess from that, like, he's kind of publicly known or, like, publicly rumoured to be queer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's sort of publicly, like, reasonably well known to be queer for, like, most of his life as a public figure. He's often quite worried about something bad coming of it. Mm -hmm. He's certainly not the only, like, acknowledged gay man public figure in Moscow or St. Petersburg at this time. Mm. We probably should acknowledge that we keep referring to him as gay and we have discussed the fact that he, like, yeah, is he also attracted to women. Definitely is. I'm using gay very loosely here and I don't mean to exclude his attraction to women, which is something which I, like, explicitly made sure that I included. Mm-hmm. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can hear it and many more wherever you find your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean. If you liked it, please leave us a review. If you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that particularly helps us to reach a wider audience. If you want to support us financially, you can sign up to our Patreon. If you sign up to $5 or more per month, we will shout you out on the podcast. So I've got a few people to thank today. We'd like to thank Joey Shelley. Ulrika L.S., Sarah McDonald, Elliot Warden, Michael Simons, or Simmons, I'm not sure, Emily, and Carol Hitchcock. Thank you to all of you for helping us do what we do. If you don't want to spend money on us, you can just tell all your friends about us. That's also much appreciated. You can find us on social media on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook as Queer as Fact, or email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. You can also find sources for each episode and links to everything on our website, queerasfact.com. We respectfully acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, both past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which we record this podcast. We'll be back on February 15th for the second part of this Tchaikovsky mini-series, I guess. <laughs> Very mini-series. <laughs> See you then.